This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, 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 what a week for news. I know we say it all the time, but it's just not stopping. Um, And so we'll get right into it then, right right off the top. And uh, VOCM's Brian Callahan is uh, just making his way back from DFO as we speak, where this uh, fairly significant announcement was made this afternoon. Harvesters and fishing industry players applauding changes made to DFO's Northern Cod Stock Assessment process, a change that is push the stock status from the critical to the cautious zone. And uh, I see that uh, Brian Callahan is on the line. Does he want to join me now to explain what's going on? He most certainly does. Uh, Hello, Brian. Hello, Linda. How are you? (laughs) Good. You must have heard me. (laughs) So uh, this is this is significant. It is. uh, Just put it into perspective. You know, um, we've uh, we all go back to the early '90s. We all remember the moratorium. This is the first time since the moratorium that the that the stock, the famous, the historic northern cod uh, stock in 2J3KL, which is the zone off the east and north uh, of uh, Newfoundland Island, uh, has moved from out of anything close to critical to cautious. I mean, it's good news. It is good news. Absolutely. And when we talk about a stock, we're actually talking about a biomass. Yeah, look, you know, again, it's a a new model that they've used. They've basically gone back to the 50s to look at the trends and try to to put more of a, a holistic look on where the stock has come from and where it's going. And since 2017, it's going well. The numbers they have from 2017 finally shows a rebound. Now, we're not talking... You know, um, it, 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 put it this way, it, in March of 2024 is when we will really know if this is something. So just the fact that the numbers they've used, a meeting last week, they put together international experts and they looked at data and it was peer reviewed, which is the key here, by international experts around the world. Last week, they finally had the confidence, the OK, to say that this is real. Uh, this is a rebound. It's out of critical and into cautious. I mean, this we're talking northern cod, right? And there are a lot of people excited, including FFAW, including um, uh, major seafood companies in the province. They're all weighing in with positive, you know, reaction. The trick here, though, and I want to caution, <laughs> not to steal DFO's word, but uh, March of 2024 will really tell the tale. That's when the full number will come out, and um, and whether or not this is real. Uh, but they believe it is. It's been peer-reviewed. They have confidence enough to make it to go public with it. And we know DFO is a cautious organization. They have a lot of scientists, a lot of science, and they don't get excited too quickly because it's always cautious optimism uh, for DFO when they have positive results. But the surveys are showing that there is a, you know, a significant, much what a lot of fishermen have been saying. And people, you know, the food fishery is a small test size. But we've all seen the size of the fish coming out of the water. And there is a general, you know, thought from fishermen, from fish companies, and from people in the know that this was coming. And now the initial results um, seem to be bearing it out. And again, March of 2024 will be the actual results that say, 
doesn't you know it'll be enough to put it to the minister to decide on the next tech as they call it the total allowable catch but Linda yeah by all accounts you were right to start the show with this this should not be discounted this is uh, this is historic it's the first change in 30 years 30 years indeed uh, you know a, a full generation or more we have people our co-workers who who don't know what it was to be living in, right. during a, an active cod fishery it's really quite yep. amazing um, and this backs up uh, what a lot of people harvesters uh, and others who have been out on the water have been saying anecdotally and backed up by the bycatch rates that's right, the bycatch too. And as well now, we can't just go, the, the, the key to here too, one of the key indicators here seems to be capelin. Of course, we know that that's their primary food source. And as cod go, capelin can go and vice versa. And it appears the capelin stock as well has stabilized. So, as you know, bottom line is the cod have a stable food source. It allows them to grow. Uh, grow big, grow families, grow spawning, grow, you name it. So, you know, like anything, you've got a good food source, uh, you're going to be healthy. And uh, that's what's happening with the cod, it appears. That's what, they lo- that's what they're looking at. And again, uh, you know, cautious optimism, but it's hard not to get a little bit excited, Linda, when we and you and I have, we remember the day, I remember the day at the Delta when the cod moratorium and Mr. Crosby had to go in and announce it. Uh, and wear it. Um, but in 30 years, this is the first time. So it's not exaggerating, you know, and I've uh, worked on another show once upon a time called the Fisheries Broadcast, where, you know, a lot of people thought this day would never come, that they would never see a rebound because, you know, the caution is uh, the minute you see an increase that everybody wants to go back at her again. And, uh, you know, we always worry about the offshore vessels, right? The, the factory freezer trawlers, which are not just factory freezer trawlers now, they can do anything. So, you know, um, it's cautious optimism, but there's no question that they've finally seen a, a, you know, an improvement, a rebound, whatever you want to call it. And uh, and they're proceeding carefully, but there's no question. It's, it's something to get excited about. Brian Callahan, I really appreciate your time. Thanks. No problem, Linda. All righty. Uh, Brian Callahan there, who was at uh, DFO earlier today uh, to get this uh, significant change that is being made to the way in which uh, northern cod stock assessments are carried out. Well, uh the FFAW's uh, president, Greg Pretty, uh, joined me on the line just a short while ago from Ottawa. Here's some of what he had to say. For years now, the FFAW has been saying the limit reference point is I- irrelevant. It makes no sense. Uh, those changes have been made now. What's your reaction? Well, this is an incredible day for the province, isn't it? I mean, it's fantastic. 33 years later, 32 years later, we're back on stream for something very big in COD. And yes, we've asked for a review of, of that assessment for years, and we have it now. They used to use 1983 to current in their assessment, but now they've gone back uh, 70 years, uh, back to uh, 1954. And guess what that uh, resulted in? Uh, increases. It looks like rather a critical zone. So this is extremely important to our communities our harvesters and our plant workers. This is the best news we've had in a long, long time. Well, 33 years, put it that way. So we're looking forward. There's a lot of work to be done, Linda. Uh, There's a uh, meeting coming up in March of 2014, uh, 2024, where the the rest of this will be discussed and we'll have an opportunity to have some input on the uh, future of the cod fishery. I'm so happy to be able to say that. 
Harvesters have been saying this for years, that the, the, the cod appear to be plentiful, and yet, year after year after year, we were given this uh, doom and gloom type of scenario. So, uh, you know, what difference will this make now to your members? We'll make, we'll make a huge difference. We can actually start to look forward to, to, to relevant, significant uh, quotas of cod. And you're right. I mean, we've had, we've suffered here uh, on, because of political reasons to keep that fishery closed, in, in my opinion. But I have to say, I have to give credit where credit is due. DFO science has been very, very good in, in this uh, current assessment. They, they are listening, which is something we haven't had in a long time politically. Science has done their work. I have to congratulate our scientist, Dr. Erin Crothers, and her team for what they put into this because it makes such a vast difference to, to, um, to our society. And the other issue that's important, you know, we have a new minister of fisheries, uh, Deanna Nabutsky. I met her last night in person. I've talked to her before on the phone. But, you know... She gets it. It's the political will to do something with our resources for the benefit of, of coastal people. So, yeah, I'm enthusiastic about what's happened here. Uh, and I'm looking forward to, to great days in, uh, in, uh, the, in the northern cod fishery. Could we once again see a, a thriving cod fishery here in the province? Well, I think... I'm not going to be, I, I can't take a stab at it, but like we're on a good road for that to happen over the next number of years. I think we're on a very good road. I had a council meeting, inshore council meeting last week in Cornerbrook. And I can tell you, going around the room, we had 30 harvesters in the room. Going around the room from Labrador right through, with, with some small exceptions, cod is in an abundance. And uh, so to answer your question, yeah. We can. We can. We start working towards a, a, uh, a cod fishery where we contribute, where we can start uh, uh, catching, processing, and selling cod in, a, in, in more fashion than we're used to. So it's, it's, it's a great day for the province. Greg Pretty, I do appreciate your time. Thank you. I thank you so much, and uh, have a great day. It's a great day for the province. Cheers. And Greg Pretty, of course, is the president of the FFAW. Well, coming up, the stress and strain felt by parents of children with complex medical needs highlighted by the Citizens Rep today. This is News Talk on VOCM. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. And we are back. Well, the province's citizens representative has released the results of an investigation into the challenges faced by parents and caregivers of children with complex medical needs. Bradley Moss found that the services and programs available operate in silos, that parents and caregivers are often confused about or unaware of their eligibility for federal or provincial government assistance, and that's leading to uh, plenty of stress and burnout. Well, here's some of what he told reporters this morning. Due to the largely confidential uh, nature of my work, primarily in complaint investigation and resolutions, not often I call press conferences, so uh, I'm glad to see you came out today for the Friendly Neighborhood Ombudsman. Um, for the release of a public report on supports for parents and caregivers of medically complex children and adults. 
In the fall of 2021, my office was approached by a caregiver who outlined in great detail the near impossible circumstances faced by her family, which struggles to provide 24-7 care for a nonverbal child with multiple comorbidities, including daily seizures and an inability to be fed by anything other than feeding tubes. This caregiver is not only a parent and consistent emotional support to the child, but also functions as a personal care attendant and nurse. Respite is hard to come by. In this family, there are no breaks, no outings, and no family vacations. I elected to investigate the systemic issue of supports for family caregivers of medically complex children and adults under the own initiative provisions of the Citizens' Representative Act. Our investigation found they are isolated, exhausted, and in many cases, have premature failing health. Many are financially unstable. Some describe little to no semblance of what our society associates with normal child rearing. They struggle to maintain the overall health of the family unit, including their own mental health and the mental health of siblings of the medically complex child. They have legitimate daily fears of what happens to their children when they pass on. My assessment, and thus the title of this report, is that parents and caregivers of medically complex children and adults in Newfoundland and Labrador are, in a phrase, hanging on by a thread. Still, they dig deep every day for the strength to persevere with limited support and respite, some extended familial help, and or some support from the province, primarily during times of extreme crisis. Our investigation of these concerns via the Department of Health and Community Services and the four regional health authorities found that silos exist in the provision of services and programs. Parents and caregivers are often confused about or unaware of the eligibility for federal or provincial government assistance. Parents and caregivers are relying on social media to learn about services and connect with each other. There's no discernible central contact point to access support. They are extremely limited programming options with long wait lists, especially after the child reaches adulthood. Some parents and caregivers are experiencing extreme financial hardship. Parents and caregivers assume significant medical care responsibilities. They have a general lack of respite hours. Parents and caregivers toil even harder in crisis situations, such as acute care stays involving their medically complex children, their spouse, or other children in the home. Private insurance coverage, especially for equipment, is expensive and problematic to obtain. These costs may require one parent to be out of the home to maintain employee coverage, thus reducing the amount of care the parent or caregiver can provide. There's a lack of supportive housing or residential accommodation for more functional adults. There's an impending lack of supportive housing or residential assisted living arrangements for a generation of children whose parents are aging and will no longer be able to physically take care of them. All of these problems are compounded in cases involving no diagnosis or rare disorders. This report is a clarion call to the government of Newfoundland and Labrador and the people of our province to prepare for a time in the near future when these parental and caregiver supports become increasingly unavailable as a generation approaches retirement age. We have a collective responsibility to work together to make sure family caregivers and their children are supported. 
We have a collective responsibility to work together to make sure they receive the benefits and services they require in a fair, timely, and efficient manner and have a plan for their future. As a province, we have a moral imperative to act and act now for these parents, caregivers, and children. The alternatives for safe, nurturing family caregiving environments are currently few. And in ex cases of extreme crisis, the options narrow to prolonged unnecessary hospitalizations, long-term care or personal uh, care home stays, the relinquishment of children into the foster care system, or on the adult side, even incarceration. What is promising, however, is that the Department of Health and Community Services recognizes these problems, and they've assured us they are working to rectify them. I want to be clear. This report is not a slam dunk over the head of the government. We receive nothing but cooperation from the responsible ministers, the senior executive and officials in the department, and the health authorities who work every day with these families. There was no static from these public bodies, only an understanding and an expressed desire to do more. Having assessed the wide array of services provided by dozens of health authority employees and hospital clinicians in Newfoundland and Labrador, we feel improvements can be made for the benefit of parents, caregivers, and their children alike. This report makes 12 recommendations in the areas of crisis situations, quality respite care, future planning, navigating systems, inclusion, therapeutic services, networking and information sharing, and finally, lessening the financial and psychological impact the culmination of these concerns has on families who give care to medically complex children. I'd like to thank all staff of this office for a true team effort. Everybody employed here took some element of the investigative and reporting process as their own. Systemic reviews in small offices like this one are difficult when individual complaint volumes climb or even stay the same. I would like to especially thank Amy Richards, who, after the passing of her little girl, took a personal and academic interest in the betterment of conditions for parents and caregivers of medically complex children. Ms. Richards' knowledge and assistance in informing this investigation was invaluable. I'd also like to acknowledge the hard work and dedication of Susan Green, who was very much aware of this issue and was instrumental in pointing out just how hard these parents and caregivers work every day to make things as good as they can for these children that they love like any parent would. Both Amy and Susan agreed to join us today for the release of this report. Finally, I want to express my sincere and heartfelt thanks to the parents and caregivers who found time in their schedules to meet with us, call us, write to us, to share their deeply personal stories and at times heart-wrenching experiences. Their dedication and devotion to their loved ones is beyond question. You can read their first-hand experiences in their own words throughout the report. Many of their statements are quite poignant and impactful, especially to anyone with children of their own. It's now our hope that this report forms the basis for improvement and acts as a starting point for making things better for them. The stakes for parents and caregivers of medically complex children and adults are high, and accordingly, we will keep the spotlight on this issue going forward by pursuing full implementation of our recommendations beyond their acceptance.
So that is um, the province's citizens representative, Bradley Moss, in a rare news conference that he held because he says, as uh, most of the things that he deals with are intensely private, but this is a uh, very important issue that affects, um, I'm not sure how many families in this province, but enough to know that uh, people are struggling and struggling hard. In fact, we heard from a parent last week, Corey McDonald, who was at a loss as to what to do to help his 21-year-old daughter, Kennedy, who uh, has a rare disorder and has aged out of the school system. And they're just looking for a place to keep her safe, uh, to keep her engaged during the day, and allow uh, both of her parents to work during the day. Otherwise, someone has to to leave their job in order to provide her with the uh, one-on-one attention that she requires. And that's just one case. There are many, many more, of course. Uh, So uh, Bradley Moss calling uh, on uh, 12 recommendations, including quality respite care for these types of families. If you have any thoughts on that, you're welcome to give us a call. And tomorrow we will hear from some of the families directly affected and some of what they have been through. Well, when we come back after the news break, uh, Memorial University um, officially opens two new nursing learning centers in Grand Falls, Windsor and Gander. Uh, Those official ceremonies taking place this evening and tomorrow evening. Uh, We'll hear more about that when we come back after the break. This is News Talk on VOCM. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. And we are back. Well, the Newfoundland and Labrador Prospectors Association says the future is bright and opportunity is knocking at the province's door when it comes to mineral exploration and mining. That's why they're expressing serious concerns about Weirac's protected areas plan for the island. Consultations, of course, underway on the Home for Nature plan. Norm Mercer is the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Prospectors Association, and he joins me now. So, uh, the Newfoundland and Labrador Prospectors Association concerned about the um, uh, Weirac's latest uh, protected areas plan for the island. Uh, you're asking the question, can we afford it? Uh, what's the concern? Well, the concern is in terms of when we look at, uh, you know, when we look at the uh, situation for the province right now, we have uh, excessive debt. We have soaring cost of living uh, costs. We have uh, health care that needs, uh, you know, that needs a lot of work. Uh, when you look in terms of all the various programs, whether it's education, social service, there are just so many needs and demands. And it's in the prospecting mineral exploration and mineral industry sector where uh, new discoveries are being made. Uh, many new jobs are being created. Much new revenue, badly needed revenue, is flowing into government, is certainly uh, you know, allowing the province to uh, to be able to support a number of the sectors, uh, many of the people who are in bad need of help. Uh, but for prospectors and mineral exploration, we need access to a large land base. Uh, our province is very much underexplored. 
that is both the island and Labrador, and we've been sending this message for the last number of years that, uh, look, we all uh, have great respect and care for the environment. We want to work together. Why remove more lands when prospecting and mineral exploration is so well regulated and uh, overseen by various uh, government agencies and other stakeholders that uh, why can't we all work together in a uh, multiple land use uh, method to uh, go out, prospect and explore for these uh, these uh, mineral finds, for these critical minerals that are badly needed, which uh, if discovered will provide uh, badly needed uh, mineral commodities, also uh, badly needed revenues and jobs uh, for this province. But can mineral exploration and, and conservation of uh, land go hand in hand? I believe that they can. I believe that, uh, you know, there are a number of areas around the world in terms of in Europe, in Scotland, in uh, Western Australia, in various parts of South America, where uh, both conservationists and uh, and miners work together. And uh, it's something that uh, it's something that uh, we have to take a whole holistic look at the island, at Labrador, we're very much underexplored, and all we have to do is witness the, you know, significant mineral discoveries that have been made over the past few years. Can you imagine if the area around Voices Bay had been removed from prospecting? The area around Valentine had been removed from prospecting. The area around Appleton and Gander had been removed from prospecting. If you look at the uh, the jobs, the revenues, the activity, and much of that certainly flows back to government. I mean, the provincial government uh, developed a strategic minerals plan a few years ago with the objective of uh, adding five new mines by 2030, increasing the number of direct employment jobs uh, by 50 percent and also very shortly i'm sure they're going to be rolling out as other provinces have done and the federal government a critical mineral strategy so i I not only think that we can i think we must uh, work together and uh, you know prospecting uh, the prospecting activity and the early stages of mineral exploration have a very very low impact on the environment and once you get into making a discovery which will only occupy a very small portion of an area in fact less than two percent of the uh, of the country canada uh, has either had historic mines or mines that are moving towards production so it is a very low footprint and uh, we certainly believe, and as I say, we're ha- avid outdoors people. That's why we got into this various, uh, the various area, the adventure and the excitement of prospecting out in the outdoors. Uh, our members have great respect for the environment. All we're saying is we can work to- together. Don't slam the door on opportunities that can be there for many of our peoples in rural and urban parts of the province. While prospecting itself may have a, uh, a low impact, you can't deny, however, that uh, uh, mining by its very nature does have a dramatic impact on the landscape. So how do you marry the two? Well, in terms of when you look at, uh, when you look at uh, say, the Marathon Golds, exciting Valentine Gold project southwest of Buckins, I mean, that has gone through a rigorous environmental assessment process. 
numerous baseline studies have been done. Both the province, the federal government, uh, you know, put that project under the under the lens from the point of view of environmental sensitivities and land use. And so there are you know there are measures that are put in place to mitigate and lower the environmental footprint. And the environmental footprint, as I say, as far as for a direct mine is very, very small when you look at the land mass, when you look at the area involved. So, uh, you know, these projects, they've been released, they've been studied by numerous biologists, numerous scientists working with both levels of government. And, uh, you know, it's a matter of, uh, you know, you can have one and you can have the other together in a multiple land use working together on the sensitivities in these various areas. Of course, there's some uh, development, just like a municipality and growth in municipalities uh, or in other areas where there's uh, infrastructure projects. But there's a lot more sensitivity and rules and regulations put in place today than there was, uh, say, decades ago. But does it need to go further? I mean, um, you know, when you talk about migration patterns and habitat and uh, old growth forest and that sort of thing? Uh, at the present time, there is significant amounts, significant parts of the island that have been removed from uh, mineral exploration and prospecting and other activities, whether we look at national parks, whether we look at wilderness areas, whether we look at ecological reserves. These small these small uh, ecological reserves where they're looking at a particular uh, fossil site or plant or bird I mean we're not opposed we're not opposed to those types of uh, those types of areas uh, gaining uh, uh, additional protections but it's when you're looking at some of these huge wilderness areas the wilderness area here on the Avalon Peninsula which was put in place many years ago to preserve the caribou on the central Avalon. That herd has almost been decimated, not by mining, not by prospecting, but by, well, certain ecological factors. It probably grew to much too large a size. Then there was the brainworm issue related to the reindeer that were brought in years ago, also in terms of encroachment by poachers. Uh, when you look at the Bay of the Nord area, when you look at the uh, wilderness areas, and when you look at the large parks in Labrador, I mean, there are quite a lot of areas. There are municipal uh, uh, watersheds. There are wetland areas. There is significant land that is protected. And as I say, every hectare of land today has a much more vibrant environmental lens placed over it than it was many, many years ago. Can we, can we afford to uh, not take advantage of potential discovery, economic mineral resources that are needed, particularly in the critical minerals path, but also when we look at the, the numbers of jobs, highly skilled jobs, well-paying jobs, significant revenues to government. The Voices Bay open pit mine, just that one mine alone, and now they've gone to two underground mines. That one mine alone paid just in direct mining tax almost $1.5 billion to the province. It basically, those monies would equate to the construction and paving of the Trans-Labrador Highway. I mean, we're a, we're a very large landmass of only half a million people, and uh, what we're saying is there are still numerous uh, 
economic mineral deposits to be discovered, which will be of great value to the people of this province, would generate great revenues, and can be developed in a very environmentally sensitive manner. Yes, will there be some ground disturbance? There will, but there are mitigating factors and significant amounts of work that's been done to lower that as much as possible. Norm Mercer, I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you very much, Linda, and thank you very much for your interest. And Norm Mercer is the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Prospectors Association. Uh, I look forward to hearing what others might have to say about that. Well, when we come back, as I mentioned before, we'll uh, talk to Andrea Watkins, the Associate Dean of Satellite Sites with Memorial's Faculty of Nursing. She's in central Newfoundland. We'll tell you why coming up right after this. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Well, Memorial University's two new nursing learning centers, uh, one in Grand Falls Winter, the other in Gander, officially being opened this week. Andrea Watkins, the Associate Dean of Satellite Sites with Memorial's Faculty of Nursing, joins me now. Well, good afternoon, Andrea. Hi, good afternoon. So how are things at the two new sites in Gander and Grand Falls, Windsor? Uh, things are fabulous. Today we are in preparation for our uh, welcome to the nursing profession and opening celebrations uh, ceremony here in Grand Falls, Windsor. And we have the same ceremony happening in Gander tomorrow evening. So what is enrollment like? Um, enrollment has been, um, our first year enrollment was a little higher than this year. Um, we are doing some more recruiting uh, initiatives and uh, hoping that we'll have a, a different um, a different uptake next year as well. So with the hope that uh, these two new sites will help to encourage more people to get involved in the nursing profession? It is. You know, we do feel that being able to bring the program to rural Newfoundland and Labrador and to bring it closer to home for individuals who may have family commitments or financially, maybe it would be more conducive to be able to do the program closer to home where living expenses may be more manageable. We are hopeful that those um, individuals will be able to access the program who might not have been able to otherwise and will certainly help with health resource planning in these areas for nursing. And what are students saying to you? Students, I've met with the students this morning actually here in Grand Falls, Windsor. They are loving the new space and the learning environment. Many of them are so pleased to be able to study close to home and at home and have those support systems around them with a decreased, you know, financial impact and, um, and, and just really enjoying the space, the physical space that we have here to be able to study, grow, learn, and become prepared to be a registered nurse. So by staying in the community and, uh, like you say, in uh, around the people they know and the supports that they have already, uh, does that um, bode well for keeping them in the community in the long term? 
We would hope so. Obviously, you know, many of the people who are here are from this area. Their families are here. Um, they want to be able to provide quality care and, and enhance and positively impact the availability of health care in the regions that they're studying in. They will avail of this care. Their family members will avail of it. So we're really hopeful that uh, this will help in retaining these students to these areas to be able to give back to their home communities. And any plans to expand this beyond Gander and Grand Falls, Windsor? Um, well, we do have another site in Happy Valley Goose Bay as well. I, I am not privy to that information. Um, so at this point, you know, we're two years into offering in these areas of the province. Um, we are still growing and learning. You know, there's four years to our Bachelor of Science in Nursing curriculum. So at this point, um, this, these, these sites are our focus. Andrea Watkins, I do appreciate your time. Thank you. And thank you for the opportunity. And Andrea Watkins is the Associate Dean of Satellite Sites with Memorial University's Faculty of Nursing. Well, the Federation of Integrated Youth Services Network's annual convention uh, taking place at the Alt Hotel in St. John's. The event, hosted by Choices for Youth, brings people from around the country together to talk about the need for innovative practices to improve access to quality, integrated health and social services for young people. Well, Premier Andrew Fury addressed the group this morning and later spoke with reporters, including VOCM's Allison King. I think it's a, a great opportunity. We're very uh, lucky and fortunate to be hosting uh, uh, people from across the country uh, to uh, consider the complexities that exist within uh, the youth uh, of, the, of 2023 and beyond. Um, their, their challenges that they face, whether it's uh, economic, uh, social, uh, mental health and addictions, these are all very complex uh, issues that can't be boiled down to a single soundbite. And rightfully deserves experts in the field, in a room, sharing experiences from across the country so that we can all move towards an evidence-based approach that will really change um, the, the landscape uh, for youth who are struggling across the country. So this is a great room today with great stakeholders and uh, I'm hopeful and I know that Sheldon and Choices for Youth will provide us with an update when this is over. With the, uh, you talked a lot about social determinants yeah. of health and the health accord. You know, where do things stand now with the progress that's been made towards, you know, the the. Um uh, things that were in the in the health accord document. Yeah, so the, the health accord, of course, acknowledges, as we all know, uh, that the rate of uh, investment in in social determinants of health, uh, things like poverty reduction and um, and housing, have not kept up uh, with the rate of investment in the operations of health. What norm? What when you ask someone what they think about health, they usually think about a hospital, for example. And so the the investments in that have outpaced the investments in the social determinants of health quite significantly, 220 increase percent increase, I think, in the operations of health and only a 6% increase over the last 20 years in, the, in social, social programming. Um, so the, the Health Accord acknowledged that, uh, and we, as a government, are moving to act on that. Not everything can happen overnight. Uh, we certainly have taken uh, the more recent uh, update on the statistics of poverty very seriously, and we'll be acting to rectify that in short term, um, because one of the biggest things 
things you can do as government is invest in the socioeconomic status of a young person. Uh, that, in fact, is, is much has much greater return on investment from a societal perspective and an economic perspective than, for example, increasing uh, the number of knee replacements that we're doing at, uh, per year. But, of course, we need to do both. And the Health Accord, I think, is a, is a nice, comprehensive, cohesive document that acknowledges both. I just want to talk about um, the tents that we're seeing popped up. They're moving around the city a little bit. When it comes to the need for housing, especially when it comes to youth, you know, how concerned are you that um, youth are going to be pushed into some of those situations? Very concerned. If there's someone uh, without access to a housing option across the province right now as a premier, uh, it's always concerning. That person is in crisis and we should be doing everything that we can to help that particular person. We are offering um, full support uh, to people in, in that crisis, in that particular crisis right now, including shelters and harm reduction team is out trying to help every single day to ensure that they have adequate access to uh, things like a drug card, a bus pass, a legal aid, uh, uh, health checks, uh, and we will continue to do that. Uh, we do recognize that we need to be doing more. Uh, th- we did acknowledge that in Budget 2023, of course, with the single largest investment in the province's history in social housing. I would love nothing more than be able to table a budget and have buildings built the next day. In fact, that's the way my mind thinks as a surgeon, in and out, uh, and have to do things quickly. Uh, the reality is that will take some time to build those units. Uh, we also, of course, have addressed the market in, on ba- in, in balance in the market with respect to supply demand by trying to encourage private investors to uh, create more options available for people in the middle class to, for housing that's more affordable and then that will equally take the pressure off the system. So we're, we're attacking it from all angles. Uh, I'd love nothing more than to be able to snap my fingers and have these units up uh, and options up overnight but uh, the reality is it will take some time and in the meantime we are helping uh, those people in crisis address their needs. And when you talk about new housing builds. Shelter beds are included. I'm just curious if you had a reason why. I know you're not the housing minister, but yeah. is there a reason? So we, you know, I know there's been some debate about uh, the, the language that's used, and, and of course the minister has, uh, has apologized, said he misspoke with respect to homes versus uh, units and options. There there will always be a requirement for different options for different people in different stages of different crises. Uh, so I think it's important uh, to acknowledge that uh, we need to be investing in places like uh, Choices for Youth that have shelter options available while also creating uh, medium and long-term options uh, for individuals. That allows us to deal with uh, acute issues that individuals or communities face uh, while uh, trying uh, to enable them to get into more uh, medium and long-term solutions. Very, These are very comp- complex uh, issues often that arise, and uh, it would be wrong to suggest that there is one simple solution. That's why a conference like today uh, is very informative for us about how we can uh, continue to evolve as a government to ensure that we are providing the wraparound supports for those individuals in a crisis at a particular time. In terms of a lot of the support you might see is right here in St. John's, how do you bring that right across the province, and what is the government doing to, to make sure those programs are available in rural areas? Sure, and I mean, that's always a challenge with any program, frankly, social or otherwise, when you're rolling out um, programs across the province, given the geographic complexity. And and by the way, the the issues, yeah, sure, they exist in St. John's, but they exist across the province. And um, there's different 
different forces at play across the province, too, by the way. For example, the one that I think about all the time is, is Lab West. The housing pressures there are immense, but they're very different. The, 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 the forces that cause that are very different than those in St. John's, for example. So uh, as a government, we need to make sure that, uh, that while we're taking a provincial approach, there is the ability to be nuanced for our rural uh, communities. Um, of course, I know the housing minister and the finance minister are looking at that, very, for example, very closely with respect to Lab West and the issue that exists in Cornerbrook currently. And that is uh, Premier Andrew Fury speaking with reporters today, including VOCM's Allison King, with a few updates there on the current housing situation in Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, uh, we were talking about, um, you know, Christmas lists and that sort of thing and talking about Dolly Parton's uh, rock star that's coming out soon and Cher's new Christmas album. Well, here's one, Claudette. OMG. Prince may have died in 2016, but as you know, he left behind a huge backlog uh, of and back catalog of music. Well, a new remastered reissue box set titled Diamonds and Pearls Super Deluxe Edition being released this Friday. Take note, hubby. There are 75 (laughs) audio tracks, including 47 previously unreleased songs, over two hours of live performance footage, and 100 page, 120 page hardcover book of photos and essays. OMG. So you're a fan. Oh, I love Prince. <laughs> love Prince. Uh, big, big, big fan. Uh, so there you go. That's on my Christmas list. I hope he is listening. I hope so, too. Anyway, we're out of time. Uh, we'll join, uh, join us at tomorrow. We'll have a lot more on the stories that you heard today in our uh, morning show tomorrow morning. Uh, pick apart some of these things. And, uh, and we'll be back on um, News Talk tomorrow at 4. Do join us then. Thanks for listening.